locomotion. <laughs> okay. Well, um, sometime during the sitting there, I felt there was a quality in the silence of all of us here meditating together that was really sweet and reminds me what I love so much about meditation practice. It's kind of like some incredible musical tone that arises from all these minds being present and quiet and working and I don't know um, what your mind sounded like to you on the inside but on on the outside there's kind of a feeling of this subsonic hum that's really wonderful and it reminds me a little bit of the image that I wanted to start off this talk with which is entitled um, Renunciation Choosing Freedom um, there's an Australian woman that um, a couple of other people in this room here know uh, pretty well who used to practice at IMS, and she said that the way that she was attracted to the Dharma was by being an Australian backpacker in Thailand and seeing the young nuns at a monastery meditating in the shade under the trees, doing standing meditation, not sitting meditation. And there was something about the sort of whole impact of that image and their presence and their shaven heads and their robes and their training that um, made her interested to see what this is about. So whatever um, the door of the Dharma is for you, it it could be something quite idiosyncratic, but there's a way that um, when the Dharma is present, all of its aspects are there. And when any of its um, big aspects is genuinely there, then the rest of it is there, which is, I think, partly why the image of a jewel is often used for sort of the three jewels, that um, when you look into any facet, you kind of see all the other facets. And awareness is like that in the practice, equanimity is like that, and especially renunciation is like that. Um, It's kind of the mood of Buddhism. It can be... um, a mood of a kind of lightness of being ready to let go of things instead of getting enmeshed with things. Um, It can be a kind of inclination of mind, or it can arise as a sense of kind of strength to face what's happening in one's life when it needs to be faced and to renounce the outcome that one might have wished to have. In the Tibetan tradition, renunciation is called the foot of meditation because it's sort of the basis, it's one of the first movements that is made by the mind to go beyond what it knows or to um, renounce what you would have ordinarily done at home this evening and come here to hear someone say something you don't know what they're going to (laughs) say. It's also the foot because it's kind of the thing that keeps you moving um, on. I know like... um, one of my friends is practicing jhanas, uh, jhana practice right now at the Forest Refuge, and she said every, the movement of refinement of mind from one jhana to the next consists only of sort of letting go more and more, of uh, relinquishing. When I was researching this um, in some of the Pali texts, not, not in Pali but in translation, I found quite a lovely little sort of nest of meanings around renunciation, One of the most interesting ones was um, that renunciation is a a mind that's called debtless, without debt. A feeling that um, nothing is owed to this mind. It doesn't really need anything. It's a kind of maturity. It's equated also with the habit of being generous rather than being needy and the habit of being able to be content with things and with one's life the way it is. The word is called chaga, chaga. 
and it's uh, contrasted to the childish, tyrannical mind that is alternatively totally infatuated and then depressed or distracted (laughs) and deluded um, that rules our lives much of the time. And strangely enough, in kind of contrast to what some of the ordinary thoughts that we might have about renunciation, some of the regular associations that come up, the effect of chaga, um, of this mature, renounced mind, is to be able to enjoy material objects. And there's a progression. It starts with being able to, be in, to enjoy material objects, to enjoy the blessing of material objects, to feel satisfied with the effort that one has made to obtain the things that one has in a blameless way, and in the end to find that there's no need to go look for goodness from anyone else than oneself. So it's, that's quite nice, and it's not exactly the feeling of a kind of rejecting mind that might first come up when you hear this topic of renunciation. In the early time when I was thinking about giving this talk, I thought maybe I should have entitled it Tooth Extraction or something like that. And it was like, <laughs> renunciation, is that fun? No. <laughs> the image is sort of of the... Um, sort of like a drop of water on a lotus petal, like allowing one's experiences to stay and then to to go away when they go. This, um, I thought that there's, I should contrast this sort of happy picture of renunciation, this kind of mature, um, contented feeling with the crude and hasty notions that the mind may have, um, like tooth extraction or the reactivity. I, I was trying to think, what's the reason why renunciation can sound kind of unpleasant? And it might be this kind of deep-rooted assumption of the childish, immature mind that um, happiness is based on getting and having things rather than giving things up and letting go. So that when you hear renunciation, you think, oh. (laughs) Um, I was at a doctor appointment today, and I I told the... I was scribbling as I was lying on this bed, and the doctor came in and said, what are you doing? And he said, I'm writing a talk. What's it on? Renunciation. He said, ah, that sounds like church stuff. (laughs) And I said, well, yeah, kind of. <laughs> There's a feeling when you think of renunciation in Buddhism that, um, you know, you can't, like, dress nicely, you can't have a partner, you can't have fun. Um, on the other hand, there are a lot of lay people and even sort of some wealthy ones in the time of the Buddha that became arhants. And the Buddha had a lot of instructions for lay people, um, including there should be no shame between husband and wife in the normal relations that husband and wife should have. So... Um, for us who are not necessarily uh, t- taking the robes, renunciation means something more subtle and more different. Like we don't have to suddenly shave off our heads, <laughs> shave our hair off our heads. Excuse me. <laughs> I was thinking about um, when I was a young practitioner. Um, I had this desperate desire to go to the three-month course uh, for years in a row. I'd always save the money, and then um, something would happen and wipe it all away. And I then was living with my parents and couldn't get away and all these things. And um, the last time that this happened, I got, um, instead of being able to go to the three-month courses I wanted to do, I got a grant to go to an arts colony. Um, so that got me out of the house. But I decided, like, the first few days, I was in my early 20s, I said, I'm not going to do an arts colony. I'm not an artist. I'm a Buddhist. I'm going to, you know, this is sort of the same. I'll just cut off all my hair, and I'm going to take a vow of silence. I'm not going to talk to anyone. <laughs> the whole three months that I'm here... And um, the first night there was a party that where we were all supposed to get together and I drank a quart of plum brandy and ended up sleeping in someone else's room. <laughs> I was kind of like, oh, well, you know, renunciation doesn't happen all at once. 
So this kind of thing that we can just like get rid of everything and you know annihilate our experience by renouncing everything once and for all, like some kind of mental crash diet as a shortcut, doesn't necessarily work. <laughs> you might think that oh we're going to renounce the world, but um, or we're going to renounce desire, but the world doesn't necessarily stop. You know we might feel very renounced in one moment, and then our desire and wish will come back again. And there's not really anywhere that we can go to get away from the alternation of pleasure and pain and our reactions to those things. So it's good to remember that. Like Even monks and nuns who renounce the world have still petty desires and um, little fights and you know stuff like that that they have to deal with. They have a lot of support for their practice also and a lot of reminders around them. There's a kind of lineage and transmission that happens when you ordain. But at the same time, um, they're not really able to run away from things. And this practice isn't um, sort of to be used for that, although it seems like a lot of people, um, and intermittently oneself, has used it as (laughs) a way of kind of trying to get away from reality rather than going towards it. But in fact, it's more um, to go toward reality and toward the deepest nature of how things are, both able to see the suffering side, which sometimes is sort of the door to the Dharma for some people, that um, it's admitted that things are painful, you don't have to hide that. Very often it's quite enough uh, renunciation to admit what you're really feeling in some moment and not to turn away from it. To admit sort of who you are and the things that your mind does and the reactions that you have. That's the sort of... um, sometimes the strength-requiring or fiery-requiring form of renunciation, just to come into the present moment with whatever the present moment holds. The cooler type of renunciation is often to um, stop importing the past and future into this moment and just to relax and be here. Like the nuns under the trees I mentioned, sort of allowing to feel the weight of their bodies and the changing uh, sensations of the breeze and the shade on their skin and watching their thoughts come and go as they come. To let what comes come and to let what goes go, as Sharon Salzberg says, defines renunciation. So just now... um, At this point in the talk, although we've just done a sitting, I'd like to suggest that we take a moment to arrive here in this room and to let go of whatever happened to us during the rest of the day and just be here very simply for a minute. Just feeling the body, the room and the other people around us. The other funny thing about coming into this moment and awareness is that um, there's also a kind of axiom that each one of us has the perfect life in which to wake up. And um, the idea that you have to sort of shave your head or get rid of your partner or live somewhere else um, in order to really be renounced is kind of an escape. And if you renounce this escape, then all of a sudden there's a kind of galvanizing moment where you feel like... um, if you want to do this, you actually have to do this. <laughs> Nothing's going to happen if you don't do anything. 
Um, all the people who've attained any degree of liberation at all just started off as an ordinary, normal being with an ordinary, normal body and mind. Then they did what they had to do. Um, It's not something that anyone else can force on you or anything that anyone can do for you or do to you. There's a kind of way that the teachings are presented and then according to the resonance that they have for each person. They kind of go in effortlessly, but then there's a point where you have to kind of take yourself in hand. You need just a little bit of um, faith or sense of possibility to be willing to try it out, and also a little bit of suffering to make you desperate enough to move. (laughs) There's a quotation in the Dhammapada related to renunciation also. Um, If by forsaking a limited ease he would see an abundance of ease, the enlightened man would forsake the limited ease for the sake of the abundant. Kind of like um, sort of what happens when people quit smoking. They forsake one pleasure for a higher pleasure, but it's not always so easy. Alexander Berzin, who's a uh, Tibetan practitioner, defines renunciation as the willingness to give up problems and their causes, which is <laughs> it's one of those kind of silent but deadly ones. <laughs> it's like close examination of the nature of the problem and the cause, and um, using your intelligence kind of in combination with the teachings to arrive at some definitive conclusion for oneself. Here's a sutta. The Venerable Ananda, together with the Tapusa the householder, went to the Blessed One, and on arrival, having bowed down to him, sat to one side. As he was sitting there, he said to the Blessed One, Tapusa the householder here has said to me, Venerable Ananda, sir, we are householders who indulge in sensuality, delight in sensuality, enjoy sensuality, rejoice in sensuality. For us, indulging, delighting, enjoying, and rejoicing, renunciation seems like a sheer drop-off. Yet I've heard that in this doctrine and discipline, the hearts of the very young monks leap up at renunciation. They grow confident, steadfast, and firm, seeing it as peace. So right here is where this doctrine and discipline is contrary to the great mass of people here in this issue of renunciation. This sutta is one where I sort of feel like you kind of sense the Buddha probably um, very near, or I did when I was reading it. So it is, Ananda, so it is. Even I myself, before my awakening, when I was still an unawakened bodhisattva, or sort of human being becoming a Buddha, I thought renunciation is good, seclusion is good. But my heart didn't leap up at renunciation. It didn't grow confident, steadfast, or firm, seeing it as peace. The thought occurred to me, what's the cause, the reason why my heart doesn't leap up at renunciation? Doesn't grow confident, steadfast, or firm, or see it as peace? Then the thought occurred to me, I haven't really seen the drawback of sensual pleasures, I haven't pursued that theme. I haven't understood the reward of renunciation. I haven't familiarized myself with it. That's why my heart doesn't leap up at renunciation. Then then the thought occurred to me, if having seen the drawback of sensual pleasures, I were to pursue that theme, blah, 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 blah. So at a later time, having seen the drawback of sensual pleasures, I familiarized myself with it. My heart leaped up, grew confident, steadfast, and firm, seeing renunciation as peace. Then I entered and remained in the first jhana with rapture and pleasure born from withdrawal accompanied by a directed thought. So seeing the um, 
drawbacks of the world of sensuality and the world of subject and object to the world of sort of superficial pleasure. It's often um, advised to contemplate in a discriminating way and use your intelligence to look at life, to look at impermanence, to look at the universality of death for everyone, um, to look at how we all kind of go through the same stuff and think, you know, the ordinary habits and doings of the mind. Um, One of the yoga teachers I like, Richard Freeman, said, our mind would be willing to torture us for the rest of our lives. (laughs) And if you look at it sort of from this slant, you can see how, like, day by day, if we don't do anything, we'll reinforce all kinds of patterns of reaction that will descend deeply into the body and the mind. That twinge of anxiety that ends up keeping your neck to one side and ends up as chronic neck pain and medical bills and headaches... Um, coming from some kind of slightly unconscious, maybe, you know, people don't love me enough, or I'm overworked, or pains in the shoulders, pains in the stomach. The sense that we may have of sort of doing so much futile stuff in one day and obtaining so little in return, all the bills you have to pay, or when your computer breaks, you know, how many hours does it take to fix it? Um the feeling that our enemies are going to go unpunished, you know, people who are mean to us in traffic, just go off. (laughs) Nobody's there with a laser thing to show that they ran the light, you know. (laughs) Or, um, you know, fame, any kind of little fame or good reputation that we might have had, or our love uh, life or job life has aspects of huge unreliability in it, things not turning out the way we hoped that they would. Um, how we burden our loved ones with dreadful expectations that they should fulfill us and make us happy and do exactly what we want them to do all the time. Um, Habits of blaming others or just gossip in which we don't feel proud of ourselves afterwards or hostility and arrogance, um, anxiety, uh, self-justification, victim posture in life all the sort of habits of mind that bring us a kind of limited ease or a sense of comfort that we're used to and end up making our lives feel so small and kind of empty. One of my favorite um, urban figures is the SUV driver who's running a red light, turning left, while I'm trying to cross the street with his hand on the cell phone and kind of going, wee, like this. You know, you have to kind of jump out of their way. Think about this person who um, sort of... Okay, political rant. Arming themselves in a car, like putting their welfare above the welfare of everyone else. (laughs) Becoming a cause of suffering and danger to others. (laughs) Blocking herself off in every way from the puny bodies of the pedestrians on the street. (laughs) Causing wars in Iraq. I mean, anyway. (laughs) Anyway, um, this reflection about the universality of pain and the inescapability of death and stuff like that is not necessarily to be depressed, but to um, become realistic and not to close yourself off from the suffering in yourself and the suffering of other people. Like, if you close yourself off too much from suffering, you become a cause of suffering for other people because of all the mental patterns and armoring that you have to have. It's recommended to settle back and take stock and try to really open the heart to this and put it kind of inside the heart. Another kind of reflection can be, at the end of each day, to what extent did I indulge the bad habits and defects of my mind today? What did I do? That, um, how did I let myself get carried away? 
And at the end of these reflections, or in just some moment, we might see that um, this type of suffering and emptiness actually pulls us together with the rest of the human race, like how the mind is kind of always hungry. It's never really satisfied. We always are doing one thing or another to soothe or placate the sense of desire. How much more we want from any experience, including you know our meditation one hour ago or this talk or the idea of renunciation, um, how much we're kind of bargaining for what we can get out of things how hard it might be to imagine the bliss of being free of the mind, how we um, have, might have glimpsed it once in a meditation and then it goes away immediately after. <clears throat> there's a feeling often that there's just something that isn't right about the ordinary way that we live our lives, which brings us to a place like this. But again, that's a way of also developing um, both the impetus to practice and to open yourself in a different way at a different level to life and also a way of um, discovering compassion and that we're not alone. It's not as if, um, you know, we often think that either we're the only one who's going to die or everyone else are the only ones who are going to die, <laughs> you know, not us. Or like if we start really getting into the fact that we're dying, it seems like everyone else is going to survive and just party on without us <laughs> while we disappear. <laughs> Or on the other hand, it can be that everything is just great and we finally have it all down or we're rolling along very well and we have a rich and rewarding life and then suddenly we or someone that we're close to get some kind of dire diagnosis and just the foundation of everything might seem to shake. Basically, the mind and body are a collection of unstable formations and your consciousness is not reliably contained in this mess. It's kind of a mystery how it all sort of operates together. It's like, I've always think like when I'm on the Jamaica way, like why aren't there head-on collisions every day? (laughs) (laughs) What is it that's holding all these parts together? So when impermanence will fall upon us suddenly, what will we do? Like what kind of refuge will we cultivate? Where will we know where to go? In these reflections on the nature of life, there, um, the traditional ones include some very dire um, recollections and you know, recommendations to contemplate all the parasites in one's belly and to view the world as like a, the vomit of a dog that you would never return and touch and stuff like that. The goal is somewhat to shock us sometimes into not letting our mind just putter along involved in its sort of daily petty stuff as if the temporary were permanent. It's kind of trying to find a very high uh, vantage point from which to look down on our lives and make a decision about what we want to do with our energy. At the same time as it's human to be frittering away most of our lives, it's also human to want to cultivate ultimate meaning. And without reflection, I think sometimes the tendency of mind is to think that ultimate satisfaction is going to come you know, when you're get a better haircut or something like that. There's just that, that wish to sort of just be soothed and to have, have your desire kind of stop. Um, just gets hooked on to something that will never really, um, really approach the root of the problem. It doesn't mean that you shouldn't cut your hair, but it does mean that it's not like, you know, sort of going from hairdresser to hairdresser looking for the ultimate haircut. <laughs> We don't want to end up on our deathbed thinking, um, did I waste my life? Um, You know, I think the perspective from that point is radically changed. And there's something to be said for just living life as life is and enjoying life as it presents itself. But also, that deathbed 
looking back from one's deathbed can be a really good way of checking on, um, you know, if you have doubts about something that you're doing, do I want to, you know, or even just say, like, do I want to fast forward 20 years and see that I did this for the last 20 years? Um, if I don't want to be doing it 20 years from now, maybe I don't want to be doing it now. These questions about how we want to live and what level of life we want to cultivate are questions that we ask for our own sake as well as the sake of other people. And I think a lot of the answers that, um, as, our, as our problems are universal, I think a lot of our answers are both idiosyncratic and universal. You know, things I want to do before I die, make sure that I want to do them. But there's also a way that I think many of us want to feel a sense of peace or wholeness, a capacity for attention, you know, a wish to have made a contribution to the world, to be more loving or helpful to other people. To There's a desire as much, you know, to be free, but also to connect and participate and be with others in this world. So this renunciation at the beginning of the path also is renouncing the superficial level of life, all the things that we've been taught up until now. In uh, traditional texts, that's called uh, renouncing the goals of this life. It's kind of, um, sometimes you have to apply things. When you read traditional texts, you sometimes have to try to apply them in a more subtle or personal way. Renounce the tyranny of this childish, uh, gratification-driven mind could be called renouncing samsara, moving towards uh, that quality of chaga. Renouncing selfishness um, means renouncing the goal of only gratifying your ego, which can never be gratified. And the last and most subtle one is to uh, renounce attachments um, in your views of reality, or which all means sort of slipping from the point of negotiating everything from the level of thought to the level of presence, of sort of back to the nuns under the trees or the silence in the meditation hall, to try to operate from a different mode that will bring us closer to what's true, therefore give us the power to choose. As Shakespeare said, the world is too much with us, late and soon, getting and spending, we lay waste our powers. And we don't want to do that. So after, you've, after one has surveyed the landscape in this way, there is a certain sort of... Um, renounced austerity and strength that has to come into play and to be willing to let go of problems and their causes. We've created a kind of open space of um, sort of not operating according to habitual patterns and the first or main austerity, which is close to um, coming into the moment and just being and admitting uh, where you are, letting be what's true is the austerity of being able to turn toward what's difficult rather than constantly turning away from it. And there's a way that you can see that in that movement you develop a lot of strength and openness of mind rather than just habitually avoiding things. This is something that also impacts on the body, on uh, tightly held patterns of tension in the body that come from the physical aversion that we have to certain things. You can um, make it sound better by uh, saying that it's acknowledging the fullness of what life is presenting in an unconditional way. Um, You know, it's not as if the enlightened person has an uninterrupted sequence of pure pleasure. It's that they relate to pleasure and pain and the alternation of pleasure and pain from a point of freedom so that the mind is actually happy, regardless of what the experience throws at it. 
Ajahn Lee Damadero um, talks about the alternation of pleasant and unpleasant sensations in the body. And that's a kind of easy one to see, like to not, um, to learn to not get quite so involved in speculations about your twinges or, um, you know, too much worry or past and future or why I have this or things like that, that how the thinking can kind of get a hold of you and make your body pain worse, but to be able to be just with the pain. But Ajahn Lee Damandero also talks about how the moods of the mind are something to um, be able to not be caught up in, so that when we feel ourselves being a little bit gloomy, to find an awareness of saying that this is kind of just a part of the mind, this is part of what the mind is doing, and it's not necessarily going to become cheerful just because I wish it wasn't feeling this way. So to loosen a little bit that identification and reacting in yet another layer to the movements of the mind through the day. Sometimes um, it's important to um, introduce a limitation into what we contemplate. Like um, somewhat recently I was having a biopsy and they said to me, like, don't look at what we're doing, okay? So I thought, I'm a Buddhist, I should look. You know, I'm really strong. <laughs> but, <laughs> but I obeyed because it was the doctor, and I was looking out the window at a rock on the top of the parking garage, and the nurse went by with a tray of, like, the samples that they just took out of me. It looked like bacon. It was horrible. It was so much bigger than I thought. <laughs> and I fainted. <laughs> it's like I said, I'm starting to feel kind of weird. And a second later, I was on the floor with all these people around me. It was like, wow. Okay, so I didn't need to look at that. I go, you know, it's not as if it really strengthened my mind in any way. It just seemed to come, <laughs> come from some totally other place. Then I also had to let go of the outcome of um, feeling like because I was a meditator, I was going to be able to contemplate anything. At the end of that, um, the, the nurse told me that uh, she should have given me back my, the talk that I was writing about letting go of the outcome. <laughs> So also if um, all these meditations and contemplations of death is starting to bring your mind into depression and kind of getting involved in a huge amount of like dark negative thinking and gloom, then um, you don't need to do them for now. And remember that for now you are actually alive or you wouldn't be able to be um, taking on these reflections. Also, if the suffering of others is something that particularly affects you, there's a form of equanimity that says that with all your goodwill, you'll do what you can, but um, only you're only one person. And everyone, in the end, has to face their own situation, even oneself. In fact, thinking a lot about the suffering of others often is a form that you use to get away from your own feeling, <laughs> or it can be. You have to renounce that wish for omnipotence, too, and become humble again. So looking into our own minds, sometimes um, our patterns can be really tricky and deeply held. Um, and it's not like they go away all of a sudden because you see them. We have to sort of work at them as best we can and um, wait sometimes for the time that the energy is available to actually make a change. Like sometimes the best we can do is just kind of rest in them and say, well, it's okay because it's here. There's nothing I can really do about my habit of being paranoid or whatever it is, you know, wishing that people would love me or not feeling the way I wish I could feel. Um, how close can we approach to holding our actual state without going on indulging the faults of the mind even further? In these contemplations, it's quite obvious that like sort of like the 20 fleas that every dog has, most of us have a few... Um, 
faults of the mind that we tend to indulge. And one form of sort of austerity practice could be to choose one um, form of behavior or pattern and see if we can work with it over a period of time. One of the outer um, types of behavior that's really common that people have is food habits. Um, it's hard to even know ultimately what we should eat. I mean, there are, people are debating about it constantly. <laughs> and how to change your food habits are very hard. You know, the, obviously the ideal is moderation and balance, but um, there's often a big problem with attaining that in one's own life, like a sort of big difference between what my body really needs and what I think it needs and what I'm afraid of it not getting and um, sort of the habit of gluttony. One friend of mine took a two-week juice fast on a Hawaiian island very recently and sort of he was quite overweight, so during these two weeks he lost... 25 pounds. He was incredibly euphoric. And for him, it was like the beginning of being able to see that he could change his body and change his habits. But then, like, um, he became terrified of coming home because he's going to have to start eating again. And he was going to have to be with other people and feel all the pressures of people saying, oh, have some more, or, you know, here, eat this, or, you know, being antisocial or the social pressure. And sort of the way that it's important to be able to negotiate, being able to say yes and say no in any situation can feel very delicate and daunting. So that part of what we have to be able to tolerate in the mature um, chaga mind is the need to make compromises with our ideals and who we think we should be and how we think our practice should go and to be able to be contented with um, the very slow, uh, often, regeneration that happens in the mind when we um, make our bumbling efforts to heal. Sometimes we don't know how much, um, how much we're growing, say, the desire, how much um, sort of the good qualities of mind are growing in a 45-minute sitting when all you can do is just keep yourself from running, screaming out of the room. <laughs> how that develops the fire and power in the mind. Or how when maybe we're in a kind of more quiet type of sitting, the good qualities are growing like corn in the nighttime without us necessarily doing anything about them. Basically, one of the good things about meditation practice is that just by doing it, it's not as if you have to cause the outcome yourself. It's just by applying yourself to some of these very simple techniques that um, the wholesome qualities of mind can grow. So just staying in the middle of your seat and breathing and using the breath as an object, it um, kind of allows the mind to not go running around grasping every crazy thing that it wants, like an elephant in the marketplace eating every piece of fruit. It teaches you the response of letting go of your thoughts and going back to something else. And so it gives you this kind of alternative standpoint from which to see the validity of some of your thoughts and make decisions about how useful they are. Also to feel kind of some of the impulses and not act on them is really important. Um, under the impulse to run screaming from the room is what? You know, is it that you can't take a certain amount of physical pain? Is there compression in the body? Or is it thoughts that you can't allow to surface? Um, if you sort of take a breath and open to as much as you can to whatever state you're in, it has a chance sometimes of revealing what's underneath it. In psychiatry, they have this idea that if you suppress the symptom of the acting out, then you have a chance of kind of getting at what's driving it, and that's often a somewhat uncomfortable process, like what it is that makes you want to reach for 
that limited comfort of whatever mental, you know, gossip or running people down. Like, um, if you try not to do it, then you feel the temptation uh, to do it. And what is it exactly? Like, what's the exact quality of your motivation or my, you know, my motivation when I do this? to raise my own ego in comparison with them, to feel like I know something, you know, to feel like I've finally settled some question once and for all, and I kind of have power over a situation by saying, well, I know what that person did last week, kind of thing, and how small that can make life. But until, for me, until I started kind of resisting the impulse to do it, I didn't actually know why I was doing it. It just felt like it was kind of a not-so-nice kind of fun. Eventually, we begin to see that all of our mental movements are ephemeral, um, and that some of the things that we believe are really unnecessary. It can be amazing to find ourselves clinging to really strange negative beliefs about ourselves and others, like, you know, I am just a complete loser underneath some huge grandiosity, you know, stuff like that. If in this practice, you know, you sort of keep practicing about going back to the breathing and sort of staying in the middle with these things, sometimes you can just get a glimpse that this is only a belief and it's founded only on the force of habit. There's nothing necessarily holding it in place except for the investment that you've put into it. So this repeated habit of bringing awareness to the movements of the mind um, has an automatic but slow um, quality of bringing detachment or a kind of natural renunciation, just like a fruit might ripen and fall off the tree. Awareness itself has one aspect of wisdom, which is that it's somewhat independent of the object. It shows the object the way a mirror would show it, but there's an aspect of awareness that's uninvolved with the flow of experience. Experiences come and go, whether we hold on to them or not, and the more you see more of them come and go, the more you kind of can appreciate their absence when they're over. You sort of say, well, where is last week, or where is that fight that I had in the office. Where is it right now? It's not here except if my mind brings it here. And I don't have to bring it here. On the last retreat I was on, I figured out that it's not actually necessary to think nearly as much as I thought it was necessary to. (laughs) (laughs) Instead of having six thoughts per step in walking meditation, at one point I had six steps with one thought. That was great. Now, you know, there's a lot of knowing that goes on without thinking. Like, a lot of what we're responding to is on another level. It's on the level of a kind of direct perception. But we don't know that because we think that we're kind of swinging from branch to branch in our thoughts, um, relying on them so much um, when they're inherently quite limiting and they never cover, even the self that we identify with doesn't cover the depths of ourselves or the image that we have of other people based on their face and five chance remarks they've made to us. We figure that we know them or we kind of know what they are. Um, It doesn't begin to touch what's possible, even those kind of silent aspects within us. Like the time I thought, um, I'm going to die with most of my eggs, never, you know, the eggs in my ovaries never would happen, nothing nothing will happen to them. (laughs) Um, As Ajahn Lee also says, the aspect that takes birth takes birth and the aspect that dies dies but the aspect that's unborn and undying is always unborn and undying. And in a sense, this kind of right view is essential to real, uh, the really happy renunciation, to be free of clinging to phenomena and to appreciate the kind of part of us that doesn't really come into being, 
that's something that we need these teachings to do because it's something that we would tend to overlook the parts of us that aren't defined and can't be definable, and yet this kind of silence that accompanies us all the time to take refuge in that. I remember once with um, our teacher, Nyosho Kempo, I was in a very feminist phase, and I was pissed that he was sitting on the bed eating and his wife was sitting eating on the floor. So I went in and I did my three prostrations. I said to him, you know, Rinpoche, why are you sitting on the bed and your wife is eating on the floor? And he looked at me and he said, what about your mind? Is your mind like this? Or is it like this? And I was kind of like, huh? <laughs> like, neither one. And he said, okay. And I left the room and he continued sitting on the bed and his wife continued sitting on the floor. But, you know, in that moment, there was that place of being really beyond gender um, with them in the room. And yet the part that, you know, the part that takes birth takes birth and the part that doesn't, doesn't. It's just there. Thank God we don't have to be ourselves. <laughs> Someone said that on a retreat. He said, I'm so glad I don't have to be me. <laughs> I don't really have to be me. This weekend I was in New York and we went to a musical where the first song was this very funny one where everyone was complaining about their lives and the theme was, it sucks to be me. So they were saying, it sucks to be me. It sucks to be me. And then they'd talk about their little tribulations and end up like that. And at the end, one of them came out and their problems were so great that they said, well, you know what, it really does suck to be you. You're worse than anyone. <laughs> and at the end of the play, they were selling these buttons where you could wear something that said, it sucks to be me. And I thought, wow, I'm not buying that. <laughs> but, <laughs> but afterwards, I thought, you know what, it sucks to be me anytime. Like, that's a really Buddhist button. Like... <laughs> If you feel like you have to be me, um, you know, who's driving this contraption? Um, are we the owner of our experience, really? Um, as if we thought we were the body and mind, you know, it's like um, as if we thought we were this vehicle that uh, we can't get out of. It's like driving the car to the beach and unable to get out because you think you really are the car. Um, <laughs> thinking that you're the person who does everything in your life, that um, you're sustaining the action of your cells, um, that you are the sufferer of all the suffering that there is. I think if you start to look really deeply, there's not much justification for that degree of holding. It's not like the ego structure kind of dismantles and disappears, but it's such a relative concept that's probably created you know, by, by a, a form of convenience that your parents had to think of something to call you. They couldn't just say, ah, ah, come in here. You know, They sort of figured out a name to call you. <laughs> And then they figured out the attributes that you had. Uh, they told you that you were selfish or you were a brat or you were smart or something like that, and that now you're burdened with that for the rest of your life. Um, what about the parts of us that aren't affected by that, that don't fit under our name or our label? We can sense that when we come into the moment, too. There's a way that the moment is really unconstructed, the present moment. And the mind kind of keeps trying to fabricate some structure on it, like even, even to the extent of what should I really eat. You know, that's sort of like always trying to grasp at something that can't necessarily ultimately be determined always. So this training of coming into the moment, this training of inhabiting a genuine level of being with this kind of more primordial type of awareness is what begins to unravel our habitual patterns of tightening 
So don't overlook the renunciation of just not knowing, of just being. The Buddha said, because there is the unborn, the unmade, and the uncompounded, there is escape from the born, the made, and the compounded. We can touch slightly on this element here and now, just in this room. The uncompounded element is sort of here. It's not something that you can necessarily sort of pinpoint and stick in your pocket and take home, but it will be waiting for you at home (laughs) once you get there. As uh, one of my teachers said, I was doing a practice of imagining, sort of giving all my stuff away and giving the universe away and stuff. And at some point I started to feel really stripped, even though I was only imagining all this stuff. So I said, what what do you do about that? He said, "Um, are you afraid that things are empty or that they're not empty? (laughs) Which kind of puts a nice spin on fear of death also. If there's a way in which all that's happening to us is a kind of incredibly complex and absorbing three-dimensional hallucination um, with maybe nothing else going on than this, but at the same time, it's quite a mystery what we really are in contrast to what we think we are. So in conclusion, um, I'll quote one of the um, bhikkhus of the Buddha's time, a poem that he wrote. I'll make a trade, aging for the ageless, burning for the unbound, the highest peace, the unexcelled rest from the yoke. Thanks. So I'm going to sit a little bit.
So um, for those who are going home, bye. Thank you very much. Have a wonderful evening or sleep. And anyone who wants to stay and discuss this topic or any other, you're welcome to stay. Wow, what is it? Right. Than the thing itself. And the unobvious is actually the beginning of the thing. So looking, starting with the unobvious, you can, in a relaxed way, grow towards the moment when you meet the thing in fullness. What do you mean? I'm, can you be clearer about the unobvious, or is it better to just yes. leave it as an unobvious? Uh-huh. So therefore the obvious would be for me to pay attention and look at you right. instead of feeling you through the whole room. Right. Yeah, the kind of the blinders versus something instead more. Of doing the totality. Right. What about looking um, inside toward yourself at the time of wanting something? Do you try to do that? Different, I think, view of the 
so confused that my path had to be that I decided to just be where I wanted to be. Because I didn't have any self. So I created myself. Uh, but then there's an aspect of the self, which is the magical self, which is the sub what I call the subconscious body-mind. Mm -hmm. And what the subconscious body-mind to me, I differentiate between God and the Creator. I'm aligned with the Creator. They're two different beings, but of course all in the same universe. But the everything in existence has to have a being of the Creator in it in order to be situated in existence. And that being is the subconscious to, to me is a subconscious body mind. And it being connected to the Creator it is all knowing. <coughs> and it is empty. And it is always in perfect balance. And so with meditation, mantras, you can fill it up. And then it becomes a ma your magical self. It's the thing when you learn to play piano and you can't play piano, but then after you do it enough, you can just relax because something else mm -hmm. is playing the piano. So your question was, what about looking? I forgot. <laughs> I've been I trying to find. I, <laughs> I guess my answer is that I simply create myself. I don't have to look. I am uh -huh. what I want to be. Okay. Good. Can, do you want to talk about it more? Or do you, how does it work for you? I, I also like things to not be me giving all the answers. So. Okay, I won't make you talk. Um, I know one of the practices of, of um, you know, sort of doing things for other people used to feel to me, to me rather threatening because there were sort of currents in my family that were about sort of a really weird kind of codependent thing. And it, it took a long time for uh, my own mind to sort of appreciate the motivation of doing things for other people or with a motivation to like to do one's own practice with the hope that all beings will benefit and when that happens or when that feeling comes it's actually very um, beautiful and liberating and it's not as if you're kind of hoarding and accumulating all your improvements kind of for yourself and it, I think it's that that core of sort of needing to adorn and enhance kind of oneself that uh, can pollute a, a sort of the solitary practice where you feel like, well, this sitting didn't go well, so this is, you know, things have happened kind of badly, you know, and, and um, you, 
you're all constantly trying to pinpoint yourself on a map of, you know, maybe where you are, whether you are better or worse or something like that. Whereas if it stops being quite so much about you, um, it's not like that you should remain in an unliberated state and then hope to liberate other people by, <laughs> by with your unliberated effort. I mean, the you know, the pinnacle of it should be that you liberate yourself first so that you'll have something to say to other people to whatever degree that you can help them. But there are some practices that are connected with specifically sort of moving your, your ego aside so that the practice can flow more freely of um, even of exchanging the notion of yourself with another person is sort of very gently thinking that just as that person seems like someone else to me, I seem like someone else to that person and that person seems like me. The way that I seem to myself so precious and so fascinating is exactly the way every single other person in this room feels about themselves and if you can kind of make that little exchange, the way that um, it becomes so exciting to think about the qualities and the inner world of other people is really, um, it's really magical is the word that you were using, um, to feel that you're really willing to devote um, things to other people in the way that they're precious to themselves just as you're precious to you. And um, in the sense of renunciation, it's not unpleasant. It actually feels very good and sort of very real and not like a weird trick that you do. It's an acknowledgement of, I mean, I assume that you are all pretty much living in a self similarly to the way that I do. Um, and just to recognize that is is quite a shock that all the billions of people on the planet, each one is just as important to themselves as I am to me. <laughs> Um, it kind of does something, and I would—I guess I would call that a movement of, of renunciation. I don't know if you're looking for something different. That's a very sort of high abstract one. It's not sort of like saying like you're going to give a dollar to the person who's trying to sell you the spare change magazine, or you know, or give away something of yours so that someone else can have it. I don't know. There, then it should become something like that too. Right. <laughs> Back and forth. And I'm wondering if, if, if you're aware of any practice where I might hmm. do that, or, or is that just the way it goes? Well, the, the chaga mind, or the renunciate, renunciate generous mind, is considered a wholesome root, which means that it's innate in everyone. It was a part of the talk that I rushed over so that it wouldn't get too long, but the uh, loving kindness, wisdom, and generosity, or renunciate generosity, is innate in the mind of every person. But um, we also have the unwholesome roots of selfishness, um, delusion, and anger to sort of, so that you're just experiencing the impersonal arising of the two different roots, and which ones do you want to encourage? But on the other hand, I would also like to encourage people to be very careful about some of the subtleties in renunciation. Like there's that sort of really hasty 
rough type of renunciation that can be, um, its motivation may not be to liberate you. Um, it could be a form of inner cruelty that you're practicing to yourself. I know um, my sister, for example, is a doctor in San Francisco. She takes care of very underprivileged people all day long. She works really hard. She's given up all kinds of stuff in her career to help that kind of person. And she was telling me on the phone the other day that she had a desire to buy herself this really nice oriental carpet for $1,000. And she felt so guilty about it that she almost went and gave the same $1,000 to the food bank instead because she couldn't bear to experience having a desire for something for herself. And so we talked about where's the point of freedom in that. Like you don't have to then go buy the carpet to prove that you can give things to yourself, but you don't also have to give the same $1,000 to the food bank just because you wanted a carpet. You know what I mean? <laughs> Especially when you spend all day long helping other people. Maybe it's, maybe it's okay to have a carpet, you know? <laughs> like, if your desire, are you the kind of person who, if you have a desire that comes up, do you immediately think, I should suppress this? Because who knows where it might lead? Or, you know? <laughs> so I think it's good to be able to, like, look also for freedom within the practice of renunciation, to look for, like, not defining things narrowly according to the image of what the right kind of person would do, you know, because, like, the good and perfect person would do X, Y, and Z. And um, if we live by that, a lot of times we come into danger of judging other people for their small habits. You know, the, the little indulgences and the petty things that people do to satisfy themselves. If we don't let ourselves do that yet, we want to, and we don't have a very liberated relationship to it, then we can get a very tight view of uh, what the generous and renounced person should be, that we're putting ourselves into a mold so I would say, you know, when you find selfishness arising, um, look at it and see, because sometimes it's good to be present as yourself in a situation. Not necessarily just about buying stuff, but if you have a reaction, sometimes it's important to offer it to the person who caused it. <laughs> you know, like, not always. I mean, not if it's a habit of, like, just barking at people for no reason or being perfectionistic or something like that. But if someone's actually hurting you, the generosity could be to give them a little feedback. So I think it's a subtle, renunciation is a subtle kind of practice in that sense. But when you find that you can freely do it, and if you can incline towards it as a practice, like to say like, give a dollar to the first person that asks you every day or something like that, and then see... Um, or, you know, there are certain situations that might come up repetitively in which you know that you could give something more and you feel a little contracted. Like, is there a way around, like, why you feel contracted and could you be more generous in some way that still feels authentic? I, it's what? interesting, if I may just ask the following question. As you spoke, um, one thing we can clear up in my mind, which is that for me, renunciation trying to drop desire. Right. And I think what you're saying is that it's more nuanced. Yeah. Maybe what we're getting at is to not drop it before you've allowed yourself to experience it fully. Um, similarly to what you were saying, to not to go straight to the thing immediately, but rather to also be able to have the experience of wanting to go to the thing or kind of the those pulls because um, if you're able to really experience those things kind of maybe as even as sensations in the body or you know what is it that you're afraid of or the kind of little sequence of of reactions that you have when the object comes into place that will um, open up something that's probably more free rather than feels like 
dropping it too prematurely. Um, sort of be transparent within it in that way. And then see and make a decision about what you want to do with the, in, in the environment of desiring something. Yeah, wait, no, there's two in, there's three in a row, but we'll start, we'll go from the back. Um, I think what you, um, what you just said in, uh, <clears throat> a moment ago rather points up the difference between renunciation that is helpful and renunciation that isn't. That right. renunciation that is helpful has a, ha- actually has a direct connection to generosity. Right, um, right. Uh, I, I, just last week, I was listening to a tape of Steve Armstrong's talk on the same thing, and when he told a story about psychologists uh, studying uh, children or leaving children alone in a room with a candy bar and saying, "We'll be back in two minutes. Uh-huh. If you don't eat that candy bar, we'll give you another one." Oh, right. <laughs> and seeing what happened, and uh-huh. in some cases, like you know, kids just ignored it completely, went and ate the candy bar. Right. So they just they sat. Agonized, they struggled. They like ran around the room desperately trying to ignore the candy bar so that they could get it. Right. And some just kind of like sat there and stared at it and like it. The, the, the reactions to it all was really quite something. Um, but uh, sorry, I, that the I'm almost lost the connection with what I was going to say next. There, the um, the connection to generosity um, really is that, or it seems to me is that. By giving, as you said, by giving up the lesser, or the sutta said, that you right. said, by giving up the lesser amount, the lesser of whatever, you get a greater of whatever, right. which actually gives you more. Right. You wind up, you know, with a net gain from that, in the sense that there is any gain you know, from it, to be able to help more, give more, absorb more, understand more, whatever. Right. You know, that, that context may be. Kind of expanding the scope of the mind in that yes. way, yeah. And that's yeah. really a very interesting conundrum, I think, for um, uh, for for most people. So I recently had some conversations about um, people, or with with people, some very close, about um, uh, about what to do with certain situations that you know, uh, uh, some things that I wanted to do that seemed. Uh, like win-win situations for me and another person. And the response was always, why are you giving that away? Mm-hmm. And it wasn't a case, of, to, to me, it was never a case of really giving it away, but most everyone else's perception of it certainly was. Mm-hmm. Um, it's interesting how our, you know, our minds and our culture right. just don't see that, you know, that, that the generosity is not as present, it's, and hence the renunciation right. is equally difficult. Yeah, he who dies with the most toys wins, or whatever. <laughs> well, there, there's also that thing in uh, in Buddhist culture of feeling that when you do a generous act, you're actually helping yourself. Like you're helping your future lives, and you're helping yourself become more liberated. And so it really frees up people around the act of giving. I mean, there can be almost like a selfishness about giving in that place. But to think that it is a benefit for your mind without having quite the little edge of calculation that could enter. Um, I think is really beautiful. It also, as you can see, would help a society go. Like After the Chinese invaded Tibet, they told the Tibetans, well, the tree spirits are not going to be mad if you just cut down this whole forest. There are no tree spirits. But then, you know, 
soil all eroded and you know, like so that some you know there's some ways in which this belief that you're benefiting yourself is actually much more real and concrete than that in a social way like if you're around people who are actually practicing generosity everything is really so nice you know for everyone because it inspires a, a reciprocity in people too um, sort of that you view you see openness you see other people being open and then you feel like doing it yourself too because you don't feel like you have to guard your stuff against you know someone who wants your very bandana right there. <laughs> There's some people in the back, but I think, are you two, they were, had their hands up earlier, so I don't know, do you still want to, because somebody's there too. There? You? Yeah. Impossible to, to have playfulness, that genuine enjoyment of what you're saying, without having some kind of openness. You can't be all constricted and, and really be playing. And, and um, I kind of lost that in my life for a while, like pretty much totally. Mm. And so it got down to the point where I was waiting for the time when that could happen again. And, and my attitude towards generosity was like, that was a nice idea and I would like to do it someday, but right. I had enough. Not right now, yeah. And yeah. I noticed after about 10 years that I never had enough. Right. And, um, and that when I did try to give something away, I felt uh, <clears throat> frightened that, that I, I just spare change or whatever. Right. I didn't know when to stop or, mm-hmm. or what was going to happen to me now that I'd given something maybe above it. You would need I it. I had a lot of fears about it. Right. But what I've noticed through meditation is just that um, I haven't been doing it that long. It's brought this kind of spaciousness into my life. It's, it's just working on its own. I don't have to make any decisions about uh, being generous. It's not right. to happen. It's not great. time or anything like that. But, right, yeah. Um, but uh, I'm kind of right. winding around to the I was wondering how you um, find that that. I was just wondering how you find that the practice uh, affects your writing. Oh, that. Uh huh. Um, I they're in some ways they're somewhat separate realms, and it's not always easy to keep them. Uh, harmonious at all, since partly they both involve long hours of sitting in, in one place, <laughs> and they take the same, you know, they take up a, a lot of time from each other. So that since I do both of them seriously, it's sort of constantly wondering if I should just do one or do the other. And I certainly know which one I would drop if I had to drop it. I would drop writing. Um, I think that with with writing, things come and playfulness also comes and goes in yes. the writing realm. You know, sometimes it seems just the most dire thing I can do to drag myself to my desk. And, you know, I try to sort of create a little moment of openness before I start, you know, sort of moving the literary furniture around and trying to make everything fit in one room. You know, sort of there's some, you know, some of that kind of. But I feel like they both involve a kind of mental effort and determination, sometimes within solitude, that um, it kind of goes from one to the other. Mm-hmm. It seems to me like whenever I write and 
something comes out that's of any sense or value. It's, it's because I renounced me. Right. I, you know, this is like not a new idea or anything, but the idea of being able to renounce something is kind of like the generosity thing for me. Like right. I got an aversion to it. Right. I didn't want to renounce anything. I wanted more. Right. Tonight, when I saw the topic of your talk, um, I felt glad. I felt like I'd learned enough about what happens when you have spaciousness to know right. that it might be a good thing to learn right. a little bit more about renouncing. And, and I had just been doing some writing, which is why I asked about them. It seems like there must be. Well, certainly like open letting go, just allowing the creative play of the mind and letting stuff just come up and happen by itself But um, is important in writing, like to just be able to do something that's different from anything you've done before and write about stuff in a way that, you know, you might might not work out and stuff like that. It's good. Why did you say that about having to choose? Do you think you would have to? I don't know. Sometimes... Sometimes I, we should probably save this conversation for even a post-discussion because it's not relevant to everyone in the room. But um, it's hard to make a living as a writer. So it's some ways it's not supportive to do something, to spend a lot of time doing something that is only its own reward if you need other things from your work. So, <laughs> so that's, that's where it can start to feel very gloomy. But... Um, not always, and within the writing writing process itself, it's kind of wonderful when it's working, and when it's not working, it's not fun at all. <laughs> but so I said, I do sometimes think, well, should should I have uh, gotten a degree in sewage management instead of being a writer, or something, <laughs> something that would be relevant to other people, where I would have an office and a paycheck and. Uh, but that's just that's personal. That's not dharma. That's not anything to do with this talk at all. That's just me um, <laughs> whining up here. But yeah, it, you know, that some of the work conditions of being a writer are hard. Anyway, we should probably go. There's other people who are still. most in the long-range way. What kind of changes have you seen in yourself from, when, from before you started meditating to the point that you're now? And do you feel like real changes have happened? Because I guess I'm sort of wondering, like, I'm putting a lot of hours in, you know? Uh-huh. And, I, and I'm putting hope in this process that it will change my state of being. Yeah. But I kind of want to know whether you think that... It's worth it. actually creates substantial changes in your state of being. Yeah, I do. I really do. I think, but it reveals your real state of being um, as much as it cha- you know it changes where you place your state of being. And what um, the woman just in front of you said is kind of one of the amazing ways that it happens. That you do the practice, and then things kind of unfold in a way that isn't what it isn't always the way you wish it would. And it, you know, I had very grandiose expectations for myself when I started to practice, and they were of a certain they were in a certain category of you know, when I was a teenager and I thought, I just want to, I visualized this mountain shaped like a child's drawing with snow on top and me sitting on the top of it like this, you know. Um, And that didn't happen, but I'm 
much happier than I was. And my mind is much more unbound. I mean, I'm, I'm a lot aware also of the, pl of the places and the way in which it's constricted. And I, I still feel like every few years I turn some corner that I think like, how could I have survived up until now without kind of having this level of understanding? And to some extent, I think that's a natural unfolding with growing up. Like a certain amount of growing up just happens for everybody. If, if we're lucky, you know, that we don't get worse and worse when we're older, there's a certain amount of kind of the stuff that was installed in you when you were a baby or things that happened when, you're a, when your parents affect you so deeply that you kind of like get a lot of layers of experience and it kind of like kind of washes some of it away, I think, um, if you live in sort of reasonable conditions and you don't you have a war zone traumatizing you more and more. But, but I think that just as the woman said, you know, that um, you do the practice and something inside you starts to grow, whether it's space or joy or sometimes they're very hard parts in the practice where you uncover some like real swamp of sludge that's been driving you all along and you spend some time you know really experiencing the misery that's behind all your actions and then you end up coming out the other side of that and it's like really easy for a while and then it might get hard again but um it's fascinating how it works and it's always really unpredictable but um there can be this feeling of a contact with genuine, true being and true life and truth within the field of your experience that is like this just wonderful like bedrock for everything, even if you also know you're deluded at the same time. But you start to approach something that's really genuine and that's, there's nothing like it. It's great. I <laughs> know you've fallen over with exhaustion. <laughs> Sorry. Some people like that style too. You know, and, and you just have that impression of, and, and I think it's nice when right. you can add a lot of smiles into it because smiles just says a thousand words, you know, just when you smile at somebody passing by instead of just having the same space and being aware of that, you know, you right. some of that joy away. And it's very nice to be on that scene and editing it when you're, um, you know, kind of struggling with some stuff. And um, what I wanted to say, I, Right. And so it was like um, I had to give up the fact that renunciate for us the fact that I that I thought I knew everything. You know, right. that I, I that um, I was in control of everything. Exactly. So I, yeah. You know, really um, let things come to me, and um, that's good. I don't know. It was like um, I just was so aware. of where my intentions were coming from. Like, I wanted to be a good person, and I wanted to be really aware and awake and do good for the world. But right. where was that intention really coming from? You know, was it, it was coming from this expectation of, you know, of, that I was created in my mind for myself so I could feel better about myself, or was it really right? Like, are you overriding the person that you are in order to become someone yeah, that you exactly, aren't? Yeah. Exactly. And, and so I just, um, when I 
started meditating, I, um, I did it a, a real lot. It was in the summertime on the beach, and just hours would go by, and um, it was just the most amazing thing. And I was not controlling anymore what I was expecting of myself. And, and it just hit me. I'm, 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 I'm sort of I'm waiting on tables. I'm, I'm hating my life. I'm not using my degree. I'm like, where, where's my path? What am I supposed to be doing? What is my dharma? And questioning it so much. And, Stop questioning it and, and, and just stop looking for the answer and just decided to open up and sort of let it come. And when I took the pressure off myself and I was just sitting on the beach after about six hours one day and it just hit me, you know, about, um, I just said to myself, I'm going to go to an agency and see if they need volunteer, volunteers for helping the, um, the mentally retarded, developmentally cognitively disabled. And, and I wasn't expecting much out of it, you know, and but one thing went to another and I found myself in a position where I was really face to face with people and families and and the compassion just like flowed right out of me, you know, and it was no longer that I was I was doing so I was like I was led there. I couldn't mm -hmm. leave myself there. And um, I don't know how it happened, but I know it would have never happened if I didn't meditate and become aware of my thoughts and my intentions and, and try to sort of calm and balance my mind and be able to um, renunciate all the expectations that right. I had for myself and what I thought, where I thought I should be in my life and just sort of felt guided to this place. And, and it was a beautiful time. Right. <laughs> and then, like the gentleman over here was saying, circumstances come up and, and, um, it, and whoa, they just come up. And what I found... So when I was in the middle of not being able to renunciate at all right now, like anything that's coming up, I'm so enmeshed in it because it brought up emotional sort of trauma or, you know, um, feelings from things that are deeply rooted in our emotions from childhood. It's so hard right. to yeah. renunciate when it's the first time you're facing them and stuff. And, and so I just wonder if you have any advice on that kind of, um, you know, What's what the going the day to day sort of when life's pretty kind of calm and stable or you know just it, when you're in the middle of sort of some kind of chaos that right whether I brought on myself or or you know um, it's just kind of life happening and uh, how to sort of be able to create the space and, and right. See it. Yeah, well, I think the, the step of renunciation can be to acknowledge that there might not be any space or that it's sort of like a form of weather, you know, that on some days are great and some days alternate with storms, you know, and some days are kind of gray. And, you know, it's sort of like that, that life alternates between periods when things feel very fulfilling and you've kind of figured it out and you're experiencing even some fruits and benefits of your practice. And that is almost as if it creates space to allow another layer of stuff to come up now you're you know you're a little bigger you're a little stronger well try a load of this you know, yeah. <laughs> you know? <laughs> and um i think they can be very fruitful times i mean if you're not actually like if you're in a place of something that's actually dangerous that you need to remove yourself from then um sort of staying and acknowledging the oncoming train or you know the person who's stalking you or something like that it probably isn't a good idea <laughs> But if stuff just doesn't feel like it's working the way it uh, sort of should be working, that's, 
Um, I think that's the situation of a lot of people a lot of the time. You know, you kind of keep doing your best and you hope that you land in a place that feels like it's expressing, you know, what's inside you to be expressed in your life work. Like, I think people who find the right work are lucky. You know, people who find the right work and get paid for it, um, they're lucky and a lot of them feel lucky. They say, I can't believe I have this job. I'm so lucky. Like, I sat at a diner today next to this guy who repairs engines on the Amtrak and he's obsessed with trains. He has model trains all over his house. Um, like, he, I have a such-and-such 13-foot such replica of this train that's really a mile and a half long, and every, char- every car is exactly the way it is. And I'm like, there's no difference for this man between his obsession and his work. And I make $100,000 a year. And I'm like, this is a lucky... He's weird. <laughs> he just got a girlfriend for the first time in 11 years, and he said, she knows the score. You know, <laughs> you know she's going to have to deal with me and my trains. You know? <laughs> But a lot of people just, they do something. I mean, they find something that we, you know, we find something that we can do and, and we do it, you know, like in some way to find something in life that feels like it corresponds. But life isn't, it's like the debtless mind. It's like, does life owe us to find us a position within it or, you know, but it's, there's a part of it that's just kind of a struggle, you know, and... It's not because you're a bad person that you have a struggle <laughs> or because you're inadequate or it might make you feel that way, but you know, you imagine someone else who, that's a fantasy that's like the fantasy when you were a waitress, like it should be different. And usually getting rid of the idea that it should be different is, is important, even as a step, as you're saying, towards change, because you can just get really locked in. Um, it still maybe should be different. You know, when something comes up that you can change, then you change it. Okay, one more, I guess. Uh, can you explain a little bit more on uh, the connection between generosity and renunciation? And perhaps maybe meta involved, involved in that? Well, if you want... Um, generosity is like a war between selfishness and the desire to make other people happy (laughs) sort of the process of being generous can be sort of like here's something that I have that I could keep for myself like my spare change you know and how hard is it sometimes to you know sort of get out your wallet or put your hand in your pocket to give away something whereas sometimes being able to give something um, even a little of what you can give just allows you to feel like you had something that you could give without being embarrassed that it should be more. Um, But these sort of wholesome roots are part of the impulses of most people that you might sometimes really want to make someone else happy or you might really wish that everyone in the world could be happy, that the world would be a happier place. And, you know, it's okay. It's just, it doesn't mean that there is any connection between your wish for this to be and your capacity to make it so, but you can wish that everyone in this room would have good health and you know, well-being and contentment and all those things. And when you have a moment that you could offer something like a smile or whatever that helps them in that direction, that's the generosity of just one smile. Does that make, is that, they're all kind of related. Like these are all terms that refer to things that are, you know, not confined within the words that we use or the structures. I think there might be time for us to stop. This is, thanks, everybody.